20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Jules Verne. Chapter 15. An Invitation in Writing. The next day, November 9th, I woke up only after a long 12-hour slumber. Conseil, a creature of habit, came to ask how Master's night went and to offer his services. He had left his Canadian friend sleeping like a man who had never done anything else. I let the gallant lad babble as he pleased, without giving him much in the way of a reply. I was concerned about Captain Nemo's absence during our session the previous afternoon, and I hoped to see him again today. Soon I had put on my clothes, which were woven from strands of seashell tissue. More than once their composition provoked comments from Conseil. I informed him that they were made from the smooth silken filaments with which the fan mussel, a type of seashell quite abundant along Mediterranean beaches, attaches itself to rocks. In olden times, fine fabrics, stockings, and gloves were made from such filaments, because they were both very soft and very warm. So the Nautilus's crew could dress themselves at little cost without needing a thing from cotton growers, sheep, or silkworms on shore. As soon as I was dressed, I made my way to the main lounge. It was deserted. I dove into studying the conchological treasures amassed inside the glass cases. I also investigated the huge plant albums that were filled with the rarest marine herbs, which, although they were pressed and dried, still kept their wonderful colors. Among these valuable water plants, I noted various seaweed, some Cladostephus verticulatus, peacock's tails, fig-leafed calerpa, grain-bearing beauty bushes, delicate rose-tangle tinted scarlet, sea colander arranged into fan shapes, mermaid's cups that looked like the caps of squat mushrooms and for years had been classified among the zoophytes. In short, a complete series of algae. The entire day passed without my being honored by a visit from Captain Nemo. The panels in the lounge didn't open. Perhaps they didn't want us to get tired of these beautiful things. The Nautilus kept to an east-northeasterly heading, a speed of 12 miles per hour, and a depth between 50 and 60 meters. Next day, November 10th, the same neglect, the same solitude. I didn't see a soul from the crew. Ned and Conseil spent the better part of the day with me. They were astonished at the captain's inexplicable absence. Was this eccentric man ill? Did he want to change his plans concerning us? But after all, as Conseil noted, we enjoyed complete freedom. We were daintily and abundantly fed. Our host had kept to the terms of his agreement. We couldn't complain. And moreover, the very uniqueness of our situation had such generous rewards in store for us, we had no grounds for criticism. That day I started my diary of these adventures, which has enabled me to narrate them with the most scrupulous accuracy. And one odd detail. I wrote it on paper, manufactured from marine eelgrass. Early in the morning on November 11th, fresh air poured through the Nautilus's interior, informing me that we had returned to the surface of the ocean to renew our oxygen supply. I headed for the central companionway and climbed onto the platform. It was six o'clock. 
I found the weather overcast, the sea gray but calm, hardly a billow. I hoped to encounter Captain Nemo there. Would he come? I saw only the helmsman imprisoned in the glass-windowed pilot house. Seated on the ledge, furnished by the hull of the skiff, I inhaled the sea's salty aroma with great pleasure. Little by little, the mists were dispersed under the action of the sun's rays. The radiant orb cleared the eastern horizon. Under its gaze, the sea caught on fire like a trail of gunpowder. Scattered on high, the clouds were colored in bright, wonderfully shaded hues and numerous lady fingers warned of day-long winds. But what were mere winds to this Nautilus, which no storms could intimidate? So I was marveling at this delightful sunrise, so life-giving and cheerful, when I heard someone climbing onto the platform. I was prepared to greet Captain Nemo, but it was his chief officer who appeared, whom I'd already met during our first visit with the captain. He advanced over the platform, not seeming to notice my presence. A powerful spyglass to his eye, he scrutinized every point of the horizon with utmost care. Then, his examination over, he approached the hatch and pronounced a phrase whose exact wording follows below. I remember it because every morning it was repeated under the same circumstances. It ran like this. Nautron Respok Lorni Vich. What it meant, I was unable to say. These words pronounced, the chief officer went below again. I thought the Nautilus was about to resume its underwater navigating, so I went down the hatch and back through the gangways to my stateroom. Five days passed in this way, with no change in our situation. Every morning I climbed onto the platform. The same phrase was pronounced by the same individual. Captain Nemo did not appear. I was pursuing the policy that we had seen the last of him, when on November 16th, while re-entering my stateroom with Ned and Conseil, I found a note addressed to me on the table. I opened it impatiently. It was written in a script that was clear and neat, but a bit Old English in style, its characters reminding me of German calligraphy. The note was worded as follows. Professor Aranax, aboard the Nautilus, November 16, 1867. Captain Nemo invites Professor Aranax on a hunting trip that will take place tomorrow morning in his Crespo Island forests. He hopes nothing will prevent the professor from attending, and he looks forward with pleasure to the professor's companions joining him. Captain Nemo, commander of the Nautilus. A hunting trip, Ned exclaimed, and in his forests on Crespo Island, Conseil added, but does this mean the old boy goes ashore? Ned Land went on. That seems to be the gist of it, I said, rereading the letter. Well, we've got to accept, the Canadian answered. Once we're on solid ground, we'll figure out a course of action. Besides, it wouldn't pain me to eat a couple slices of fresh venison. Without trying to reconcile the contradictions between Captain Nemo's professed horror of continents or islands and his invitation to go hunting in a forest, I was content to reply, first, let's look into this Crespo Island. I consulted the world map, and in latitude 32 degrees 40 minutes north and longitude 167 degrees 50 minutes west, I found an islet 
that had been discovered in 1801 by Captain Crespo, which old Spanish charts called Roca de la Plata, in other words, Silver Rock. So we were about 1,800 miles from our starting point, and by a slight change of heading, the Nautilus was bringing us back toward the southeast. I showed my companions this small, stray rock in the middle of the North Pacific. If Captain Nemo does sometimes go ashore, I told them, at least he only picks desert islands. Ned Land shook his head without replying. Then he and Conseil left me. After supper was served me by the mute and emotionless steward, I fell asleep, but not without some anxieties. When I woke up the next day, November 17th, I sensed that the Nautilus was completely motionless. I dressed hurriedly and entered the main lounge. Captain Nemo was there waiting for me. He stood up, bowed, and asked if it suited me to come along. Since he made no allusion to his absence the past eight days, I also refrained from mentioning it, and I simply answered that my companions and I were ready to go with him. Only, sir, I added, I'll take the liberty of addressing a question to you. Address away, Professor Aranax, and if I'm able to answer, I will. Well then, Captain, how is it that you've severed all ties with the shore, yet you own forests on Crespo Island? Professor, the captain answered me, these forests of mine don't bask in the heat and light of the sun. They aren't frequented by lions, tigers, panthers, or other quadrupeds. They're only known to me. They grow only for me. These forests aren't on land. They're actual underwater forests. Underwater forests, I exclaimed. Yes, Professor. And you're offering to take me to them? Precisely. On foot? Without getting your feet wet. While hunting? While hunting. Rifle in hand? Rifles in hand. I stared at the Nautilus's commander with an air anything but flattering to the man. Assuredly, I said to myself, he's contracted some mental illness. He's had a fit that's lasted eight days and isn't even over it yet. What a shame. I liked him better eccentric than insane. These thoughts were clearly readable on my face. But Captain Nemo remained content with inviting me to follow him, and I did so like a man resigned to the worst. We arrived at the dining room, where we found breakfast served. Professor Aranax, the captain told me, I beg you to share my breakfast without formality. We can chat while we eat. Because, although I promised you a stroll in my forests, I made no pledge to arrange for your encountering a restaurant there. Accordingly, eat your breakfast like a man who'll probably eat dinner only when it's extremely late. I did justice to this meal. It was made up of various fish and some slices of sea cucumber that praiseworthy zoophyte, all garnished with such highly appetizing seaweed as the Porphyra lacianata and the Laurentia primafetida. Our beverage consisted of clear water to which, following the captain's example, I added some drops of a fermented liquor extracted by the Kamchatka process from the seaweed known by the name as Rhodomenia palmata. At first, Captain Nemo ate without pronouncing a single word. Then he told me, Professor, when I propose that you go hunting in my Crespo forests, 
you thought I was contradicting myself. When I informed you that it was an issue of underwater forests, you thought I'd gone insane. Professor, you must never make snap judgments about your fellow man. But Captain, believe me, kindly listen to me, and you'll see if you have grounds for accusing me of insanity or self-contradiction. I'm all attention. Professor, you know as well as I do that a man can live underwater so long as he carries with him his own supply of breathable air. For underwater work projects, the workman wears a waterproof suit with his head imprisoned in a metal capsule while he receives air from above by means of force pumps and flow regulators. That's the standard equipment for a diving suit, I said. Correct. But under such conditions, the man has no freedom. He's attached to a pump that sends him air through an India rubber hose. It's an actual chain that fetters him to the shore, and if we were to be bound in this way to the Nautilus, we couldn't go far either. Then how do you break free? I asked. We use the Rukerol Deneru's device, invented by two of your fellow countrymen, but refined by me for my own special uses thereby enabling you to risk these new physiological conditions without suffering any organic disorders. It consists of a tank built from heavy sheet iron in which I store air under a pressure of 50 atmospheres. This tank is fastened to the back by means of straps, like a soldier's knapsack. Its top part forms a box where the air is regulated by a bellows mechanism and can be released only at its proper tension. In the Rukerol device, which has been in general use, two India rubber hoses leave this box and feed to a kind of tent that imprisons the operator's nose and mouth. One hose is for the entrance of air to be inhaled, the other for the exit of air to be exhaled, and the tongue closes off the former or the latter depending on the breather's needs. But in my case, since I faced considerable pressures at the bottom of the sea, I needed to enclose my head in a copper sphere, like those found on standard diving suits, and the two hoses for inhalation and exhalation now feed to that sphere. That's perfect, Captain Nemo, but the air you carry must be quickly depleted, and once it contains no more than 15% oxygen, it becomes unfit for breathing. Surely. But as I told you, Professor Aranax, the Nautilus's pumps enable me to store air under considerable pressure, and given this circumstance, the tank on my diving equipment can supply breathable air for nine or ten hours. I've no more objections to raise, I replied. I'll only ask you, Captain, how can you light your way at the bottom of the ocean? With the Ruhmkorff device, Professor Aranax, if the first is carried on the back, the second is fastened to the belt. It consists of a Bunsen battery that I activate not with potassium dichromate, but with sodium. An induction coil gathers the electricity generated and directs it to a specially designed lantern. In this lantern, one finds a glass spiral that contains only a residue of carbon dioxide gas. When the device is operating, this gas becomes luminous and gives off a continuous whitish light. Thus provided for, I breathe and I see. Captain Nemo, to my every objection you give such crushing answers, I'm afraid to entertain a single doubt.
However, though I have no choice but to accept both the Rouquayrol and Ruhmkorff devices, I'd like to register some reservations about the rifle with which you'll equip me. But it isn't a rifle that uses gunpowder, the captain replied. Then it's an air gun. Surely. How can I make gunpowder on my ship when I have no saltpeter, sulfur, or charcoal? Even so, I replied. To fire underwater in a medium that's 855 times denser than air, you'd have to overcome considerable resistance. That doesn't necessarily follow. There are certain Fulton-style guns, perfected by the Englishman Philippe Coles and Burley, the Frenchman Fursi, and the Italian Landi. They're equipped with a special system of airtight fastenings and can fire in underwater conditions. But I repeat, having no gunpowder, I've replaced it with air at high pressure, which is abundantly supplied me by Nautilus's pumps. But this air must be swiftly depleted. Well, in a pinch, can't my Rouquayrol tank supply me with more? All I have to do is draw it from an ad hoc spigot. Besides, Professor Aranax, you'll see for yourself that during these underwater hunting trips, we make no great expenditure of either air or bullets. But it seems to me that in this semi-darkness, amid this liquid that's so dense in comparison to the atmosphere, a gunshot couldn't carry far and would prove fatal only with difficulty. On the contrary, sir, with this rifle, every shot is fatal. And as soon as the animal is hit, no matter how lightly, it falls as if struck by lightning. Why? Because this rifle doesn't shoot ordinary bullets, but little glass capsules invented by the Australian chemist Lennybrook and I have a considerable supply of them. These glass capsules are covered with a strip of steel and weighted with a lead base. They're genuine little Leiden jars charged with high-volt electricity. They go off at the slightest impact, and the animal, no matter how strong, drops dead. I might add that these capsules are no bigger than number four shot, and the chamber of any ordinary rifle could hold ten of them. I'll quit debating, I replied, getting up from the table, and all that's left is for me to shoulder my rifle. So where you go, I'll go. Captain Nemo led me to the Nautilus's stern, and passing by Ned and Conseil's cabin, I summoned my two companions, who instantly followed us. Then we arrived at a cell located within easy access of the engine room. In this cell, we were to get dressed for our stroll. Chapter 16, Strolling the Plains. This cell, properly speaking, was the Nautilus's arsenal and wardrobe. Hanging from its walls, a dozen diving outfits were waiting for anybody who wanted to take a stroll. After seeing these, Ned Land exhibited an obvious distaste for the idea of putting one on. But my gallant Ned, I told him, the forests of Crespo Island are simply underwater forests. Oh, great, put in the disappointed harpooner, watching his dreams of fresh meat fade away. And you, Professor Aranax, are you going to stick yourself inside these clothes? It has to be, Mr. Ned. Have it your way, sir, the harpooner replied, shrugging his shoulders. But speaking for myself, I'll never get into those things unless they force me. 
No one will force you, Mr. Land, Captain Nemo said. And is Conseil going to risk it? Ned asked. Where master goes, I go, Conseil replied. At the captain's summons, two crewmen came to help us put on these heavy, waterproof clothes made from seamless India rubber and expressly designed to bear considerable pressures. They were like suits of armor that were both yielding and resistant, you might say. These clothes consisted of jacket and pants. The pants ended in bulky footwear adorned with heavy lead soles. The fabric of the jacket was reinforced with copper mail that shielded the chest, protected it from the water's pressure, and allowed the lungs to function freely. The sleeves ended in supple gloves that didn't impede hand movements. These perfected diving suits, it was easy to see, were a far cry from such misshapen costumes as the cork breastplates, leather jumpers, seagoing tunics, barrel helmets, etc., invented and acclaimed in the 18th century. Conseil and I were soon dressed in these diving suits, as were Captain Nemo and one of his companions, a Herculean type who must have been prodigiously strong. All that remained was to encase one's head in its metal sphere. But before proceeding with this operation, I asked the captain for permission to examine the rifles set aside for us. One of the Nautilus's men presented me with a streamlined rifle whose butt was boilerplate steel, hollow inside and of fairly large dimensions. This served as a tank for the compressed air, which a trigger-operated valve could release into the metal chamber. In a groove where the butt was heaviest, a cartridge clip held some 20 electric bullets that by means of a spring automatically took their places in the barrel of the rifle. As soon as one shot had been fired, another was ready to go off. Captain Nemo, I said, this is an ideal, easy-to-use weapon. I ask only to put it to the test, but how will we reach the bottom of the sea? Right now, Professor, the Nautilus is aground in 10 meters of water, and we've only to depart. But how will we get out? You'll see. Captain Nemo inserted his cranium into its spherical headgear. Conseil and I did the same, but not without hearing the Canadian toss us a sarcastic, happy hunting. On top, the suit ended in a collar of threaded copper onto which the metal helmet was screwed. Three holes, protected by heavy glass, allowed us to see in any direction, with simply a turn of the head inside the sphere. Placed on our backs, the Rukeyrol device went into operation as soon as it was in position, and for my part, I could breathe with ease. The Ruhmkorff lamp hanging from my belt, my rifle in hand, I was ready to go forth. But in all honesty, while imprisoned in these heavy clothes and nailed to the deck by my lead shoes, it was impossible for me to take a single step. But this circumstance had been foreseen because I felt myself propelled into a little room adjoining the wardrobe. Towed in the same way, my companions went with me. I heard a door with watertight seals close around us, and we were surrounded by profound darkness. After some minutes, a sharp hissing reached my ears. I felt a distinct sensation of cold rising from my feet to my chest, Apparently, a stopcock inside the boat was letting in water from outside, 
which overran us and soon filled up the room. Contrived in the Nautilus's side, a second door then opened. We were lit by a subdued light. An instant later, our feet were treading the bottom of the sea. And now, how can I convey the impressions left on me by this stroll under the waters? Words are powerless to describe such wonders. When even the painter's brush can't depict the effects unique to the liquid element, how can the writer's pen hope to reproduce them? Captain Nemo walked in front, and his companion followed us a few steps to the rear. Conseil and I stayed next to each other, as if daydreaming that, through our mental carapaces, a little polite conversation might still be possible. Already I no longer felt the bulkiness of my clothes, footwear, and air tank, nor the weight of the heavy sphere, inside which my head was rattling like an almond in its shell. Once immersed in water, all these objects lost a part of their weight equal to the weight of the liquid they displaced, and thanks to this law of physics discovered by Archimedes, I did just fine. I was no longer an inert mass, and I had... Comparatively speaking, great freedom of movement. Lighting up the seafloor even 30 feet beneath the surface of the ocean, the sun astonished me with its power. The solar rays easily crossed this aqueous mass and dispersed its dark colors. I could easily distinguish objects a hundred meters away. Farther on, the bottom was tinted with fine shades of ultramarine. Then off in the distance, it turned blue and faded in the midst of a hazy darkness. Truly, this water surrounding me was just a kind of air, denser than the atmosphere on land, but almost as transparent. Above me, I could see the calm surface of the ocean. We were walking on sand that was fine-grained and smooth, not wrinkled like beach sand, which preserves the impressions left by the waves. This dazzling carpet was a real mirror throwing back the sun's rays with startling intensity. The outcome? An immense vista of reflections that penetrated every liquid molecule. Will anyone believe me if I assert that at this 30-foot depth I could see as if it was broad daylight? For a quarter of an hour I trod this blazing sand, which was strewn with tiny crumbs of seashell. Looming like a long reef, the Nautilus's hull disappeared little by little, but when night fell in the midst of the waters, the ship's beacon would surely facilitate our return on board, since its rays carried with perfect distinctness. This effect is difficult to understand for anyone who has never seen light beams so sharply defined on shore. There the dust that saturates the air gives such rays the appearance of a luminous fog. But above water, as well as underwater, Shafts of electric light are transmitted with incomparable clarity. Meanwhile, we went ever onward, and these vast plains of sand seemed endless. My hands parted liquid curtains that closed again behind me, and my footprints faded swiftly under the water's pressure. Soon, scarcely blurred by their distance from us, the forms of some objects took shape before my eyes. I recognized the lower slopes of some magnificent rocks carpeted by the finest zoophyte specimens, and right off I was struck by an effect unique to this medium. 
By then it was ten o'clock in the morning. The sun's rays hit the surface of the waves at a fairly oblique angle, decomposing by refraction as though passing through a prism. And when this light came in contact with flowers, rocks, buds, seashells, and polyps, the edges of these objects were shaded with all seven hues of the solar spectrum. This riot of rainbow tints was a wonder, a feast for the eyes, a genuine kaleidoscope of red, green, yellow, orange, violet, indigo, and blue. In short, the whole palette of a color-happy painter. If only I'd been able to share with Conseil the intense sensations rising in my brain, competing with him in exclamations of wonderment. If only I had known, like Captain Nemo and his companion, how to exchange thoughts by means of prearranged signals. So for lack of anything better, I talked to myself. I declaimed inside this copper box that topped my head, spending more air on empty words than was perhaps advisable. Conseil, like me, had stopped before this splendid sight. Obviously, in the presence of these zoophyte and mollusk specimens, the fine lad was classifying his head off. Polyps and echinoderms abounded on the seafloor. Various Isis coral, Cornelarian coral living in isolation, tufts of virginal genus Oculina, formerly known by the name white coral, prickly fungus coral in the shape of mushrooms, sea anemone holding on by their muscular discs, providing a literal flower bed adorned by jellyfish from the genus Porpita wearing collars of azure tentacles, and starfish that spangled the sand, including vein-like feather stars from the genus Asterophyton that were like fine lace embroidered by the hands of water nymphs, their festoons swaying to the faint undulations caused by our walking. It filled me with real chagrin to crush underfoot the gleaming mollusk samples that littered the seafloor by the thousands. Concentric comb shells, hammer shells, coquina, seashells that actually hop around, top shell snails, red helmet shells, angel wing conchs, sea hares, and so many other exhibits from this inexhaustible ocean. But we had to keep walking, and we went forward while overhead there scudded schools of Portuguese men-o'-war that let their ultramarine tentacles drift in their wakes. Medusas, whose milky white or dainty pink parasols were festooned with azure tassels and shaded us from the sun's rays, plus jellyfish of the species Pelagia panopera that in the dark would have strewn our path with phosphorescent glimmers. All these wonders I glimpsed in the space of a quarter of a mile, barely pausing, following Captain Nemo, whose gestures kept beckoning me onward. Soon the nature of the seafloor changed. The plains of sand were followed by a bed of that viscous slime Americans call ooze, which is composed exclusively of seashells rich in limestone or silica. Then we crossed a prairie of algae, open sea plants that the waters hadn't yet torn loose, whose vegetation grew in wild profusion. Soft to the foot, these densely textured lawns would have rivaled the most luxuriant carpets woven by the hand of man. But while this greenery was sprawling under our steps, it didn't neglect us overhead. The surface of the water was crisscrossed by a floating arbor of marine plants 
belonging to that superabundant algae family that numbers more than 2,000 known species. I saw long ribbons of Fucus drifting above me, some globular, others tubular. Lorencia, Cledastephus, with the slenderest foliage. Rhodomenia palmata, resembling the fan shapes of cactus. I observed that green-colored plants kept closer to the surface of the sea, while reds occupied a medium depth, which left blacks and browns in charge of designing gardens and flower beds in the ocean's lower strata. These algae are a genuine prodigy of creation, one of the wonders of world flora. This family produces both the biggest and smallest vegetables in the world, because just as 40,000 near-invisible buds have been counted in one five-square-millimeter space, so also have fucus plants been gathered that were over 500 meters long. We'd been gone from the Nautilus for about an hour and a half. It was almost noon. I spotted this fact in the perpendicularity of the sun's rays, which were no longer refracted. The magic of these solar colors disappeared little by little, with emerald and sapphire shades vanishing from our surroundings altogether. We walked with steady steps that rang on the seafloor with astonishing intensity. The tiniest sounds were transmitted with a speed to which the ear is unaccustomed on shore. In fact, water is a better conductor of sound than air, and under the waves, noises carry four times as fast. Just then, the seafloor began to slope sharply downward. The light took on a uniform hue. We reached a depth of 100 meters, by which point we were undergoing a pressure of 10 atmospheres. But my diving clothes were built along such lines that I never suffered from this pressure. I felt only a certain tightness in the joints of my fingers, and even this discomfort soon disappeared. As for the exhaustion bound to accompany a two-hour stroll in such unfamiliar trappings, it was nil. Helped by the water, my movements were executed with startling ease. Arriving at this 300-foot depth, I still detected the sun's rays, but just barely. Their intense brilliance had been followed by a reddish twilight, a midpoint between day and night. But we could see well enough to find our way, and it still wasn't necessary to activate the Ruhmkorff device. Just then, Captain Nemo stopped. He waited until I joined him. Then he pointed a finger at some dark masses outlined in the shadows a short distance away. It's the forest of Crespo Island, I thought, and I was not mistaken.